Hey, this is Mike. This is, and you're listening to G220 Radio. We're going to be talking about chapter 25 of marriage on the Second London Baptist Confession. So come join us. It is exciting to be moving along in the 1689. Man, we are on chapter 25. There's only 32 chapters in the 1689. We're, we're, we're moving pretty good here. Moving pretty good. We're going to get another series done, Mike. I'm excited about that. Um, really excited about this, this uh, chapter here today. Um, I have a comparison chart. We're going to get into that. There's a couple. I don't know if... if I'm a 1689 guy. I'm a Reformed Baptist. But I don't know if this chapter really does the justice as our brothers of the Westminster Confession has theirs in the Savoy. Well, the, the Westminster, for sure. <clears throat> but because uh, this has four paragraphs that we're going to get into tonight, uh, whereas the Westminster has six. And I think those other two paragraphs are important ones. I don't necessarily know why the 1689 decided to leave those out in this chapter or in yeah in this chapter unless they were just really trying to distance themselves some more from the westminster i'm not sure maybe mike if you have any insight in that or not but we'll, we'll kind of talk about that when we get to to the the end of this uh and we'll, we'll even go over what's in those those uh, other two paragraphs from the westminster but uh confessions overall i, I just seen this posted before we we started the program tonight somebody had made a a comment about when people don't hold to biblical truth and a creed or confession, um, you end up seeing a lot of error that comes from that. Now, I'm not saying that the confessions uh, take the place of Scripture, but as we've said multiple times with the 1689, with the Westminster, with the Savoy, um, with, with any good confession or good creed or even a good uh, statement of faith, it keeps you from going off into error and so that is why we here at g220 radio being reformed being baptist we would adhere more in line with where i know i'm 100 in line with the 1689 and i mean we, we would have unity with our brothers in the presbyterian church those who hold to the westminster um because those are good solid confessions yeah. And it's always interesting to see why um, you have these differences um, within short times. Now, I guess from the 1689 and the Westminster, you have, you know, a good 40 years. And, um, but confessions are the products of their time. And what the, 
1619 says about marriage differs than what in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and the issues that were involved in 2000 in the creating of the updated Baptist version and where they tackle <clears throat> more um, clearly we start getting into some of the um, LGBT ideas. Not that the London Baptist Confession doesn't address it, but there is a more focus on it in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And that's so we, can, we see these ideas. We need mm -hmm. the old creeds to help us, but sometimes we need to think about topics in our own days too. Yeah. And this is definitely something if, if you are a, a church that does not have a confession or a strong statement of faith, these are things that you would want to put in there. I, I know that probably a great majority of churches would not think to add something, especially maybe maybe 10 years ago, something on marriage in their statement of faith. But we are definitely at a time right now and they felt it was important back in 1689, as well as the Westminster, even before that, to put something in there on marriage because it's a biblical doctrine, the doctrine of marriage. And I mean, so it is important to understand it. It's important to lay that out. It's important to define it because, as you said, Mike, with the LGBTQ agenda and, you know, with quote unquote homosexual marriage, which really isn't marriage because it can't be. It's not what God has designed. You really need to lay those things out or churches are going to find themselves in trouble when somebody comes in and says, hey, I want you you do marriages. I want to get married. And if you have certain things in there and say, no, as a church, we believe here, we adhere to this. And it's this is what we've held to for a very long time. And we are not changing our stances. And so uh, it's very important. I think I think confessions can really help you. Hello, Cynthia. Glad that you are joining us from Finley. Always glad to have you with us, sister. Appreciate it. But very important to have those because, like you said, Mike, the culture of our time today, this is a hot button. This is a hot topic. Uh -huh. And having a confession, lay it out. Now, again, they would not have had homosexuality has been around since way, way back. I mean, we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, these things have been in our in the culture. Today in America, what we see is rampant in our society and being more pushed to be uh, open and accepted. And, and not just, I just want you to allow me to do what I do in the privacy of my own home, but I want to go and celebrate it in the public. And I want you to embrace what I am doing and, and be joyful with, with them in, in their, their sinful um, agenda. So it's yeah. very important to have this defined and laid out. Yeah, and I think that, you know, going through, even seeing what they are saying kind of in the more Victorian, Victorian era of, uh, I think I'm correct on that, mm -hmm. kind of older English, um, it's good to think about having a culture different than ours to think about biblical truths. It's always profitable. That's why we read the old dead people. 
they give us perspectives that are different from ours. And we can see their errors and we can see where they're right. And that will help us to think clearly even in our today. I don't know why, but when you said think clearly, I, I just, what came to mind is I can see clearly now the rain is going, I don't, it just came to mind. The rain of the culture infecting yeah. your brain. There that's you go. there that's gone. <laughs> there you go. All right. So let's get into this. We're going to go ahead and share this screen here. We're going to look at the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are on chapter 25. Hopefully you all can see that. Um, and there's four paragraphs. Again, uh, there is a distinction. We'll show some of the comparison charts with the Westminster and with the Savoy because we want to uh, allow you to see those differences and, and being Baptist, why we hold to what we hold to. Um, again, as I already stated, I do think that uh, those other two paragraphs that are in the Westminster, we will get there. But when we look at those, I think those could have been put here. I don't, I don't really know why um, it's not out there. And I have not read anywhere why they, they've taken those out. So I, I don't personally know. Maybe if somebody's listening that adheres to the 1689 and they have an understanding or idea why those two paragraphs are, were, were removed from the, the Baptist Confession of Faith as opposed to what is in the Westminster, I'd love to know. You can email us at g220radio at gmail.com. Uh, I really would. And, and everything that I've searched, I, I, have, I haven't found a reason why those aren't there. So um, if somebody has something that I, I have not seen, I would love to love to know it. All right, so paragraph number one, <clears throat> marriage is to be between one man and one woman. <clears throat> Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. And this is uh, very important. As Mike said, I mean, they're, what they're doing here is they're trying to define marriage. They're laying it out what marriage is. You know, and, and probably we, we could really get into a, a, a deeper discussion on this. But what they're trying to do here is lay this out. Marriage is between one man, one woman, not this polygamous type of marriage. What's the other one? Uh, when it's the, polyandry. The polyandry, when it's the reverse row, when there's one woman with multiple men. And so they're saying look, that is not acceptable. It is one man and one woman. And then it gives us a few proof texts. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like you sh there isn't much commentary to give out. You know, for talking about Christians, I think most people believe this. Obviously, this would exclude Mormon doctrines of polygamy in our day. Obviously, Mormons are not around in 1689. So <clears throat> the 1689 framers are not thinking of Mormonism when they're writing this. Yeah, they came around when uh, around the same time as dispensationalism. Yeah, just, just poke Shots the bear. Fire. Poke the bear. <clears throat> because of Finney. So there we go. We'll accuse everyone. And um but the confession is clear. It's between one man, one woman. We see this in Genesis two. <clears throat> when uh Adam when Eve is created out of Adam's side, we can talk about that you know, in a later time about the significance of that. And it really emphasizes what Jesus has already said. You think about not only Matthew 19, Matthew 5, when dealing with lust, um, no, the 
Matthew 19 is when he's dealing with the Pharisees, um, asking about when they're asking, well, Maris or Moses allowed us to give certificate of divorce. <laughs> and Jesus's response is, yeah, it's because you have a hard heart. Like, what do you, what do you expect? You know, kind of with that. And he lays down what God created. So when we think about marriages to be between one man and one woman, we're going back to creation, how man was created. Mm. And we should also look at when we see David having multiple wives, we should recognize and know, well, that's not right. And we see that's not right because Solomon, who also has multiple wives, drifts away from the Lord. I think that will um, come up again later on here in the confession um, in chapter four or chapter three or verse paragraph three. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> here, I think the confession is clearly stating what the intended purpose of God's creation was and even outlined in first Timothy three and Titus one, when we talk about what leaders of the church to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's vitally important. I think, um, as you said, you're going to see this with, um, uh, Mormonism, maybe some, you're going to see this some in Islam where they're going to have maybe multiple lives. You're going to see this even with Hebrew Israelites. Uh, they believe in um, one man having multiple multiple women, multiple wives. And, <clears throat> but here, I think the scriptures have been clear from the very beginning and continuing in even to the new covenant that this is what God's intention was. One man and one woman, not multiple, not, not um, polygamy and not polyamory. Is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah. So not those two, right? It's, it's one man and one woman. And so that's what the confession is, is trying to lay out here. And again, it's very important that we get that because we live in a society today where the agenda is trying to be pushed that it can be man with man, woman with woman, you know, even more so it can be these, I don't, they come up with so many of these different terms where now it can be just, it's open and it's fluid. You could have two men and one woman or two women and one man. It is, it's, uh -huh. which is really the same thing, but they're, they're seeking a different name for these types of relationships. It ultimately comes down to sin is sin, right? Yeah. And there's nothing new under the sun. They're just trying to pervert these, this, what polygamy or, or uh, the other one to have some new defined name for it, you know? Um, and it's just, it's, it's not what God has designed and nothing is going to be better than God's original design of what it was intended for. Marriage is to be good. Mar marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage is, is what God gives us. It's the closest relationship that we have with an individual here on earth. And God gives us marriage. And then he shows us in this marriage that we have a husband with his wife, right? You see Christ being the head of the church and the church being his bride. You see this imagery there. And, and it's, it's, it's really just a beautiful thing that God has given us to have those types of intimate relationships. And uh, it's defined by God, not by the state, which we'll even get to that here uh, shortly in this confession as well. Yeah. And I, to think about 
kind of all four chapters or all four paragraphs in this chapter, um, it really lays down kind of what is an entrance into marriage. And so just to kind of counter it with the Baptist faith and message somewhat along the, the traditional lines, there is kind of that idea that you were t talking about diving more into the theological implications of it. So the Baptist faith, the message says the husband and wife are co-equal worth before God. Since both were created in the image of God, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God given responsibility to provide for, to protect and to lead his family. And then they continue on with a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. And you, you can kind of see the focus is on these two professions. <laughs> I don't think they're, it's not that the 1689 is wrong and the faith to start the message is right. Um, I think those, those two go together very well. They complement each other, but they're the products of the time. Here you're talking about what is kind of the beginning of marriage and kind of its overarching thing. You're not getting a lot of here's these theological implications, which become important when you start getting into nowadays with egalitarianism. And what is these now roles between a, a man and the and the wife and and how this works within the greater compounds of a family yeah and i think a, a really a few words there at the very end is also telling because i grew up in an independent fundamentalist baptist church my wife grew up in an independent fundamentalist baptist church and here it says you cannot have more than one husband or more than one wife at the same time now I posted a question when I was sharing uh, this episode today, um, basically in that divorce is always a result of sin. It's always a result of sin, right? But is yeah. it always sin to divorce? And there are times where you have been given in scripture. I think we'll talk about it a little bit more here, but there are times that have been given in scripture where it is permissible. And as you've said, you know, Moses gave a letter of divorcement because of the hardness of hearts. Understanding that while God's original design for marriage is beautiful, it's a wonderful picture of an, an intimacy, intimate relationship between man and woman, as would be this, this relationship that man would have with God, with Christ, who is the head of the church and, and the, the body being the bride, and having this, this, this personal relationship but sometimes in a fallen world, those things don't always work out. And so the grace of God is allowing, is there is allowances for divorce. And so we'll talk about those a little bit more too. But I think it says here at the same time, obviously we're dealing with polygamy or, or polyandry, whatever the other one is. I can't even. Polyandry. Polyandry. <laughs> it was on my tongue, but I just, you know, can't spit it out. But anyway. And so I think that's important because we kind of grew up in a, a church setting, both me and my wife. Again, God hates divorce. We'll talk about that. But 
grew up in a setting where divorce was viewed as like the unpardonable sin in those types of settings. Not every independent fundamentalist, I'm not throwing all of them out there, but but that was almost like it's the unpardonable sin. Um, and so, I mean, I was even a part of a church where you could not be in the choir if you were a divorced person. Didn't matter if you were divorced before you came to Christ or the circumstances of that divorce, you couldn't even sing in the choir. You know, and so <clears throat> I think a lot of times people, when when it's speaking about being deacons or or uh, elders, being the husband of one wife, being a, a one woman man, right? So unless you have anything else to say there, we'll move on to paragraph two. Yeah. Um, I don't agree with John Piper, but we'll get to that. Oh, that's a teaser. Yeah, it's a teaser for me, too, because I'm not sure what Piper said. So, <clears throat> all right. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and the preventing of unclean uncleanness. So you're probably thinking, like, what is this legitimate issue? Preventing an, of uncleanness. Maybe you can kind of see where that goes. But uh, uh, marriage is ordained as a mutual help. Women, uh, wives, are helpmeets for their husbands, just as we are to provide and take care of our, her, our wives and to lay down our lives for, for uh, our women. Love that that headship that's within the, the, the marriage union. Um, and not to abuse that. Sometimes that happens. People like to take that scripture and say, I'm the head of the house and use that as an abusive way. But the way God is, it's a helpmeet. We're to help each other. You know, um, as I was studying and listening, I was listening to a, another guy who was uh, going through the confession, and another pastor, Baptist, uh, Reformed Baptist pastor, and he stated that the, the husband and the wife should always be seeking to, every day, build up their spouse in the Lord, to, to build them up to grow closer to the Lord. Like, how is the husband leading his wife closer to the Lord that day? How is the, the wife leading the husband closer? And I mean, that really challenged me and sent, you know, convicted me. Like I, I need to be making that a, a mental thought of at all times to be seeking to how can I build up my, my wife in the Lord and grow her closer to the Lord today, you know, and not get so wrapped up in all the busyness of life because she is the closest person and should be the closest person to you in of, of all your relationships, right? Yeah, and you think about <clears throat> where this is talking about in context. So they have Genesis two eighteen, um, Genesis one twenty eight. Also, or I guess it's going to be a little bit later. Um, also, explains this is that the the idea, like in Genesis two eight. I mean, they use inferior translation. Should be using NASB 2020. Um, you know, talks about here, Adam names the animals. He he is inserting his kind of dominion that God has given to him over the animals. He's naming them. And then part of the naming was to see that <clears throat> none of the animals can be a helper to him. They have their pairs. So then God makes Adam goes to sleep takes one of his ribs, 
creates Eve with it. And now he has a helper. And that we should see this helper not just physically, but as you were mentioning spiritually, it's both. We are to grow together because we have a task to do. We are called to do something. And that's where kind of um, Genesis one twenty eight plays in. You know, God blessed them as he says it, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that moves on the earth. A man and his wife, Adam and Eve as our parents, were called to <laughs> subdue the earth, to multiply it. When you think about where Adam is placed, Adam is placed not just a garden, it's a temple garden. It's a garden designed for worship. He is to work that land and spread that out. That temple garden wasn't supposed to remain in Eden. It was supposed to cover the entire world. Well, Adam needs help. So God gave him a wife to help him to do these things. And they were to be together to worship God, to subdue the earth and to fill it, to increase it through the means God has given to him, through one man and one woman who are married at the same time with no other man or woman. And to, to grow through this and create more people to worship God and to help subdue the earth. And when we start to think about the importance here in Genesis 1 and 2 of this, we really start to see kind of the importance God has given marriage on this earth. And as the Baptist faith message would say is the family is the foundational institution of the world. Yeah. Human and society. It, and w when you mentioned, you know, building these families, growing these family as a family, you're, you're um, bringing forth or being fruitful and multiplying, uh, bringing forth children that you can, raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When it says the uh, ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, this is referring to having children. Okay. Legitimate children. Cause it even says here, um, if you look at, if, if, if the language of the 1689 is a bit hard for you to understand um, because it is written in that 17th century, Founders has one in modern English you can look at, and it, it says in Founders, it speaks about the, the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring. So that, that is what is being stated here. And this also is important. I think we, we, we didn't hit this, but it's important to understand that, that marriage is not just coming together sexually and then you're married. There's an oath that is taken which is, again, we did oaths two weeks ago, then you come to civil magistrates, uh, and then you're talking about marriage here, right? An oath is taken. When we see, in, in, especially in the Jewish uh, culture, in their custom, when we see Joseph, he is, Mary is his betrothed, an oath was taken. They didn't come together physically. They didn't have the ceremony yet. But we would maybe consider it as like an engagement, but even more so serious, I would say, than 
what we have as engagements because people can easily break off these engagements. This was an oath. You're committed to going to, to this is going to be your wife. You're you, you're making this oath that you're getting married. Right. And so <clears throat> this is a, a, a civil thing as well. So you have it's God ordained. But then it, there is there is a civil matter that takes place. You're coming together. Uh, you're taking this oath and then you're having this legitimate their legitimate offspring which civilly, you know, from the magistrate is helpful in our society and needed because what do you do? Who gets, when you think of if, if someone dies, who gets the inheritance? Who, you know, these things, the government needs to know these things. You know, I know some people that are government conspiracies, well, they don't need to know anything. But if you were to pass and then your children, who's going to get what you have to leave them as an inheritance? Or if there's other things that come up, um, you know, civilly, you have these legitimate uh, issues taken care of. Yeah. And to think that we should also understand that like even considering honoring your mother and father has respect to authorities. While yeah. families is the central foundational block for human society as the catechism would say we're all equal superiors or inferiors we're and it's not that like we're just one of those categories we're all of those categories at different levels in our relationships and to and there's also a benefit for the government to promote families to mm -hmm. promote people having children that's how you maintain yourself as a country. Your 2.3 children per family. You know, just make sure you get that 0.3. And we see the destructiveness of destroying this idea of mutual help and the increase of mankind in Europe where Muslims have lots of children and they are very rapidly taking over Europe just mm -hmm. simply by games of how many children there have. <clears throat> United States currently doesn't have, doesn't produce enough children to replace its population. And this should be something that we need to consider. And, you know, obviously I think we should have a fuller view of how does the matters of the church like marriage and this oath between God and these two people coming together as one and how that interplays with how with governments is an important question. Honestly, I don't, the kind of the Baptist confession here isn't really teasing that out. And it's probably not an issue at the end of time. There's no need to tease it out. Right. Everyone kind of has a similar view, but that's something we need to think about and to consider. Um, because also in kind of that last statement is that marriage provides kind of a moral barrier, moral standard. Yeah. And, you know, to do it now, 
sinful people will do sinful things and they will um, do things they shouldn't do. Um, they will go to places they shouldn't go. But marriage should be a place in which the man and his wife are satisfied in more than just one way right. with the family with themselves because that's how you bring about this change and the opportunity as christian parents to raise your children in the lord <clears throat> and again a way to prevent kind of this uncleanness this immorality debauchery yeah. immorality idea yeah families hold that tide and when you break down the family structure you start we we see what's happening we're seeing how our culture you know reacts to that and i mean it should really grieve us yeah all right, so now moving on to paragraph number three, it says, uh, and, and real quick, let me go to these uh, comparison charts. Uh, there's not a lot of difference between the first two paragraphs. Um, just a little bit here, you can see these uh, orange in the Westminster and the Savoy that is not in the uh, London Baptist, but not much of a difference there. Um, pretty much saying the same thing. <clears throat> And even in this uh, paragraph, you'll see there's there's very, very similar, just a few words and a few things added in the other two that that is a difference, but still pretty much stating the same thing. So here we go. Uh, paragraph three. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord and therefore such as profess the true religion, should not marry with infidels or idolaters, neither should such or neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are the wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. A lot there, but what it's stating is everyone should be uh able to lawfully, rationally give consent to marry, okay? They're able to do that, yet it is the duty of the Christian to marry in the Lord. This is important. It's important, and it goes through some of the different who you should not be yoked with. <clears throat> I remember uh, one of my grandmother's friends loved, loved the Lord. Uh, she's not with us anymore. She... She loved the Lord, but she married a Catholic man. And I remember one day, he had passed on, but I remember one day going over to visit her. Uh, my grandma was living in Florida at the time, and I went to visit her. And she just was opening up, telling me how hard it was being married to a Catholic. You know, because of the differences that they had, it caused a lot of confusion and a lot of issues with their children. And then just issues altogether uh, of being unequally yoked with someone of a different faith. Now, the Westminster and the Savoy even say, when it talks about infidels after infidels, they add papists 
or other idolatries. They're making it clear, Rome, don't, don't, don't mess with Rome. <coughs> Sorry, I had to clear my throat. So, yeah, I think to kind of bring it down, first off, it's saying missional dating is not worth it. Don't do it. Well, it's just modern vernacular. Yeah. Being relevant here to all of our single listeners, Michelin, missional dating is wrong. Um, but to kind of think through it, it's left for all sorts of people to marry. Obviously, this is thinking of people in different groups. And this is important as you've already kind of, you know, let's just run over the Catholic Church again, the Roman Catholic Church, not the universal that they have rules in place and also i think this is important a downplay in marriage so we know it's a tradition even today that a priest cannot be married now there are exceptions if someone is called to be a priest and they've already been married they're not they don't divorce their family but if you want to become a priest you can't get married. You're not allowed to be married. So we see here the Baptist Confession again, shortly <laughs> after the Reformation. You think Reformation is 1517. We're 170 years removed from that. These are still hotbed issues that here they're making it. Look, priests, pastors, elders, bishops, whatever you want to call them, they're all pastors. A local church they can be married they can be married and that it's good that they can be married but i also think too here in dealing with it and this comes with augustine one of his downsides is this downplay of marriage that it's and paul mentions this that it turns our eyes kind of away from the Lord in one sense, where you're worried about earthly things. There are first, first Corinthians chapter seven. He has that, that appeal to that. He wished that all were single like himself. What we see kind of develop is this downplay of marriage. It's kind of this burden, something think here, the confession and with the reformers in general, that marriage is not this down thing that you know it's lawful for all sorts of people to get married and to enjoy god's ordained mutual help in having a husband or a wife and to think about this and dr michael haken who i took church history to with at southern emphasized that with the reformation and kind of theology became a reformation in marriage. There's a big boom. Even, I mean, Luther got married. Luther got, try to get <clears throat> other people married. Um, nuns left, including, um, Katie to Katharina to come to get married. They're embracing this theology. And I think we should, see that and understand that 
the Baptist confession and all the other ones, they're, they're seeing this, like, you don't do, that's not right. <laughs> God has given us ordained this for us and we should be able to partake of it. And then if you're a Christian, you should make sure that you're marrying someone who shares your faith. Yeah. Who isn't one who's going to draw you away from the Lord, like the wives of Solomon, who will not lead you into damnable heresies, which will cost your soul. <clears throat> and so there's this understanding that as Christians, we should be looking for <clears throat> other Christians to marry. We shouldn't try to, I really like this person, so I'm going to date him. And I know he's not a Christian, so I'm going to preach the gospel to him. And hopefully he can be saved when we get married. That's not what they're saying. That's not what, it's not good. Because <coughs> you don't, you know, <coughs> God saves. Right. And so. Well, I think like you said, the missional dating thing is um, people do it. I mean, we see it happen. They, I'm not saying that it works. I'm saying people have this mindset that, well, I really like this person. I'm attracted to this person because they look good or whatever. They're funny or, you know, they, they, we get along well, um, but they're not a Christian, but they come to church with me, you know, they do these things. So over time, I think the Lord's going to bring them to faith and then we're going to, everything's going to be great. But it doesn't always work that way and, and you know and then you, you can't you can't bring someone along thinking that that's going to happen because if it doesn't you're unequally yoked and it will cause and can cause some serious problems in your marriage uh -huh. um and now the, the question kind of comes up because <clears throat> 1689 does not say this but the westminster does and uh i am a i'm 1689 baptist uh, i'm just saying that when it comes to marrying someone who also is a christian i would say <clears throat> it is probably a good practice to marry someone like-minded now we do understand that people grow in their theology let me show you the um uh here in the westminster and the savoy they say and therefore such as profess to uh, the true reformed religion should not marry they throw in the reformed aspect of, of you know, um, <clears throat> of our, our reformed faith. Now, they're not saying only marry someone reformed, but they're, they're throwing that in there. And I, I think that we should be careful, those that are single, um, we're married here, but those that are single, looking at those things, because I've seen this happen as well. You have someone who seems solid in their reformed faith, and they start dating, let's just say, a Pentecostal or some, some Church of the Nazarene or something that <clears throat> maybe allows for women preachers. And they start to shift in their theology because they're moved by their relationship that they have with the individual woman, right? Who's moving them that way so that they're closer in their theology, right? And so I think those are things you do have to take into consideration. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think what you see when you like deal with missional dating and even finding those who are like-minded 
or not finding like is that there is something that trumps the person's godliness. There's something more impressive. So in missional dating, I'm attracted to this person. He's really nice, whatever, but it doesn't state what is his status before the Lord. Again, I think, I think the Baptists here being probably a little bit more open, like maybe to also include their um, Presbyterian congregationalist brothers, the pure, um, and not be. Well, you bring that up. That a, even that even makes me think of, let's say, <clears throat> a Reformed Baptist woman marrying a Presbyterian young man. Yeah. And then when they have kids, what do you do? Well, the woman yeah. can submit probably to the husband in that case. And yeah, that's a real, that's real. <laughs> you have to think about it. And I think, and that's where intentional dating, you bring this up. Will this be an issue of contention? <clears throat> now we don't have the foresight, but baptism is a big deal. Yeah. And to think about it. And so I think, what we should see from paragraph three here and what we can apply here for those of you who are single is that we look for, you look for the godly person. Now, you know, God will give you whom he gives you. And, but it, we should be spiritually concerned about who our spouse is and really answering the question is, will they help me promote holiness in my life? Will they be the one that will help me in preventing of uncleanness? That's the point. It's kind of developing how to kind of fulfill paragraph two. <clears throat> All right, now moving on to paragraph number four and we've got some uh, big words here all right so uh -huh. bear with me as i seek to pronounce these correctly marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity uh, or affinity forbidden in the word nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Now, the big word consanguinity or affinity here is referring to incestuous relationships. Uh, it tells you right there when it is nor can such incestuous uh, marriages ever be made lawful. If you look at founders, um, again, like I said, it's it's more modern English for you. But even just looking up the word, uh, let's see here, let me go read. I got the definition consanguinity uh, is the fact of being descended from the same ancestor. Okay, so it's the same thing. And affinity here is a spontaneous or natural liking or sympathy for someone or something. So it's saying you're having these things, right? Um, <clears throat> but in the founders, uh, the modern, uh, excuse me, the modern uh, uh, translation of the 1689, it says marriage should not occur within the degrees of blood relationships or kinship that are forbidden in the word. And so. Yeah. That's really what is needed or is just trying to be or is being conveyed here. Yeah. So consanguinity and affinity are 
affinity is not a special liking in this case. It uh, has a different understanding. It's it's what Founder says. So it's consanguinity deals with me and my relationships through my bloodline, my parents, my siblings, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. And affinity would be in relation to um, blood ties. Usually, uh, kind of like second relatives. So it would be like my my aunt, who my my dad's sister, her husband, and those kind of tides with it. Um, it also has this: if I was to be married, this would come apart in um, the Gospels with John the Baptist. If I was to be married, it would be my wife's relationships, right? Or in in the case, <laughs> um, kind of in that too. So you kind of have this degrees of separation from the core and within your blood um relationship um dealing with this obviously we have laws in the united states that forbids i think it's second cousin um and how that uh kind of works out within it and i think there's a you know to think about it obviously this does bring up what about Genesis? It's a big topic, right? Um, to think about it because you do, in in one sense, has what we would define as incestuous relationships. I do think it's important that when the Bible speaks upon that and gives rules and laws, and again, what is reiliated in um, First Chronicles. Not Chronicles, First Corinthians chapter six, five, six, somewhere in there, um, about it. That is now what is intended. Mm. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, obviously, God created man and He created woman. Adam and Eve, from them are all men descended from. And so, in that creation, God did not, as some people teach, there are some people that teach these myths that there were other people created and, and but we're all adam being the federal head of all man sin comes into the world through adam and so we all have that but the fall continued to go and go and go and and became more uh ingrained in our society ingrained in our dna um to where you know obviously as we see when it gets to a point where the law starts to come in god says no this is not you're not going to have these kind of relationships uh, it's not lawful to do these things. So obviously to get all the population out there, we see that God uses that in the Old Testament there in the beginning of creation. Uh, but that's not his, uh, that's not what's going to be carried for all throughout all time, right? As you were saying there, Mike. So here in um, the Westminster, this part is taken out. Uh, from the Savoy and the 1689, it says the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may uh, of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. So what you were saying there, um, <clears throat> and I think it's, it's, it's there, as you were saying with affinity. Um, mm -hmm. So they don't, they don't have that in there, but 
a couple paragraphs that are in the Westminster that I think, because we got about less 10 minutes or so left, I think are, are important. And I do not, again, if anybody has some information, something I could read as to maybe why the 1689 decided not to put these in there, um, I would love to, to read that uh, or see that if, if you know of it. <clears throat> but I think these could have been important to have in there uh, because I think it also continues to define things here. It says in paragraph five of the Westminster, adultery and fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage. So again, coming back to those, those oaths that were taking place before, you're making this arrangement. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. Uh, giving Giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, uh, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out of uh, sue out a divorce, uh, and after the divorce to marry another, as is if the offending party were dead. So it, it's saying in the Westminster here that um, if in these cases adultery is committed, and you do go through with a divorce, it is as if that offending party is dead. Then you are free then in Christ. Um, now, that does not mean that divorce is always the first option if there was adultery. If you have two Christians and adultery is committed, um, you don't have to, the first thing you do is just get divorced. There can, you could strive to have that reconciliation. Because again, as we talked with the civil magistrate last week, one, within the marriage, if both are Christians, you have the church who steps in. And there's church discipline, there's church uh, um, uh, counseling, there's there's where the church comes in to try to help uh, uh, reconcile that marriage together. If that is un impossible and it does not happen in those ways, then the church can practice church discipline on the individual and also the civil magistrate can, you know, intervene and, uh, you know, go through with a, a, a letter of divorcement. Yeah. So there's been discussions on this um, in more recent time. You have <clears throat> teachers like John Piper who would say that it is unlawful to divorce at all. Now, I don't think scripture teaches that. His reasoning is that it's just a bad testimony, and that's not <clears throat> who God is. God isn't one who divorces his people. If you divorce our people, our salvation is not secure. And then also you have, so that implication on what the gospel means. It has been taught at Southern in some of the undergrad positions, um, classes that I know about this same position. Um, I do think Westminster is correct in this. There are outlined in scripture, lawful reasons for divorce. I think abandonment. Uh, um, yeah. Paragraph six. If you want to read that, if you can read it, yeah, it covers that in there. Although um, the corruption of man <laughs> be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet noting but adultery or such willful desertion can also as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is a cause significant for dissolving the bonds of marriage. 
wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So you see that example um, in there. They are valid examples scripture gives us. Just because Paul said it doesn't make it less scripture because the spirit has inspired him to write it. But I do think what we see here is really the dissolving of the person breaking or wanting to break the marriage covenant. God has given this as a grace, I think, in these times. Um, they shouldn't be used, taken lightly. Um, you know, they are the kind of last resort, but knowing our sinful, our hardness of the hearts, we do have these two exceptions and, and they do get to the theological implication of probably more like Israel and their abandonment for the idols, the spiritual mm -hmm. adultery that goes with it. Um, I know this is probably more of a, probably more of a modern, I don't know the history of this, of kind of this teaching, but it's definitely being taught today. It's being taught by prominent teachers within kind of reformed or neo-reformed or whatever you want to call um, evangelicalism and to be mindful of it. I do, again, um, I think the scripture is clear. These are valid options. Um, they're last case scenarios. You should do all that you can do, but you know, in the I end, your thing, husband, because that's who happens most, is a perpetual adulterer. He's he's not going to change. You know, I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. He's not going to change apart from the work of God. Right. And if it's causing misery, and it's just, I mean, it destroys a family. Um, this is a way to escape, um, from it. I think, um, not mentioned here, but abuse would be similar. Yeah. I think that falls with kind harm's of, way. Yeah. I, I think it kind of falls into a desertion of a, yeah. of, you know, there was a pastor who once I was having a conversation with him about abuse and we were discussing this and he told me, yeah, I don't think abuse is desertion i don't think that falls in that category and i'm like well it does because you're not just deserting someone if you pick up and leave you can stay in a relationship most abusers will stay in a relationship because they can control and continue to abuse but they've walked away they've deserted those vows that's another reason why when we did the show a couple weeks ago why oaths are so important mm -hmm. and as i mentioned i was listening to a pastor who was preaching through this <clears throat> chapter uh and one of the things he said that when he does marriage counseling when people come in and they want to are pre-marriage counseling when they're going to get married and sometimes people say well i want to write my own vows and whatever he says you can write vows but i'm going to lay down the oaths i'm going to lay down god's ordained purpose for marriage i'm going to put that out there. like because this is a serious you're taking these vows mm -hmm. and they're they're serious vows and so um in those cases uh i do think that it is permissible again not the first instinct now abuse if somebody uh, is abuses somebody one time and and they're both 
professing Christ, or Christians. Again, you go to the church, and the church works to bring that reconciliation with God and with the other individual um, that is being abused, the spouse. However, if that is not the case, you you practice church discipline. If the person is is not a Christian, not a member of the church, and you can't practice church discipline, even if they are one way or the other, the next step is civil magistrate. You go to the for protections. You know, you, there's there's ways in which God has given us to deal with these situations. If you're in the church, church discipline. If you're not in the church, then you go to the civil magistrate. In both cases, if it was a serious abuse, you go, you would do both. You would, you know what I mean? <clears throat> but there's so much we could say on that. But I do think that there are some that take that permanent, uh, permanent view where uh, there is no divorce. Or if you do divorce, then there is no remarriage. Whereas Westminster says, you know, hey, that offending party is dead. Now, obviously, we're with the 1689. It doesn't have these in there. Um, but I've been divorced before. If that's news to anybody, I don't know why. Um, I'm pretty sure it's been put out there before, but, and I've been remarried. Now, when I was married before, I, I became a Christian in my previous marriage. And so then when, when the divorce happened, uh, it was adultery and a desertion um, from the other party towards me. And then <clears throat> I wanted to know, was I able to remarry, you know, later down the road and after that had happened. And um, I went and sought a lot of counsel from a lot of people. To, to try to understand that because growing up in an independent fundamentalist Baptist church, that was a no. Right. Um, but then in reform circles, I was seeing different things differently saying, well, I mean, you tried to do everything you can to reconcile that marriage. It didn't work. The person wanted nothing to do with it. it they deserted. You're free in Christ to marry. Right. Uh -huh. Some people don't take that view. Some people take that permanent uh, or preeminent or, uh, permanence view, where, like you said, John Piper, or, or maybe uh, well, I know Bodie Bauckham takes those views. You don't, you don't get divorced, and you don't. If you do, you don't get remarried. So there's yeah. differences there. Um, I should should clarify with John Piper's view, you can get remarried to the same person, unless they get remarried, and then you can't. <clears throat> Even if know. they got divorced. Um, Again, with that, and I think there's, you know, to clarify, you know, with abuse, I mean, if it's physical abuse, you need to go not only to your church right. to get protection, but it needs to be reported. Right. Um, I think spiritual, spiritual abuse or verbal abuse is serious that can lead to physical abuse <clears throat> and it needs to be dealt with. You need to go to your elders. Um, if it escalates, obviously, you know, to be clear, you know, you go to the local authorities to have that dealt with, um, cause it is against the law and it needs to, and we see, um, what happens when the church tries to cover these things up, right? It looks bad. So this is not just to, um, you know, it's the duty and, you know, as the law, as the, the civil magistrates to deal with that, to enact judgment. God has created them for that, to punish evildoers, as we talked about last week. And so, yeah, the importance to stand firm on the importance of 
you just don't have to take abuse. That is a sense of willful um, <laughs> deserting because essentially they hate you and they don't want you there. Yeah. Like if you're not there, they're better off to think about that in that term and that way. And it needs to be dealt with. It's sin. And you don't have to put up with that um, in, in your life. And this, I think this is a more real threat nowadays. Um, and I think as we see our culture move away from Christian defined morality in which it held on to some extent to another for a while. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, any, anything you would like to share with us here, you can do so at G220 radio at gmail.com. Again, it's G220 radio at gmail dot com we would love to hear your feedback we really do we want to to hear from you uh we will be coming up on our 500th episode of g220 radio october 5th is i think it's the fifth is the day that we have planned for that 500th episode we want you to tune in we're going to be talking about galatians 220 which is the that's where g220 comes from uh we're going to be talking about that that passage and we'll have some guests with us, some former hosts of the program, Lord willing, they will be with us. And we're just excited to be getting to 500 episodes. We're going to talk about the good, some of the bad, some of the ugly, some of the things that maybe we enjoyed over the, our times. We've all have. I've been here since the beginning. Mike came a little later on. Um, and But we're going to talk about the things that maybe we've enjoyed, the, the show episodes that we've had or our guests on. Uh, or and some of the bad ones. I mean, we've had some people on the program before that walked away from the faith. And so, um, you know, there's some things in there and, and there's even some shows that we've done. I know for me personally that I've done that I look back and say, I probably shouldn't have done that show. You know, it wasn't a good call. And so therefore, we're going to kind of share some of those things on that program as well as we uh, have that 500th episode of G220. It's exciting. 500 episodes. I mean, that's a long time. Uh, that's a lot of perseverance uh, with doing this and even mm -hmm. changing from one platform that we was with to another one and just learning these things. It's uh, it's a lot of, of uh, perseverance with that and uh, persistence and uh, just being uh, consistent with seeking to do a show every week, uh, once a week. That's it's a it's been a joy. It's been fun. And so. Uh, we'll see if we make another 500 after that, but uh, who knows? Only the Lord does, but uh, 500 episodes, it's coming up next week. I do believe we should be on the next chapter of the 1689. Okay. Greg Schreiber said number 500. Yep. That's 500 of them, man, a lot. And uh, that's on the church. We're going to be talking about the church, Mike. That This is, I think is very vital for today. I mean, we better... We better plan a couple weeks to talk about the church. Yeah, I think that's a long chapter, isn't it? It's a long chapter. Not only is it a long chapter, it's an important chapter. Yeah, very. So yeah, we we may we may get on the church and we may be on the church till our five hundred episode. And hey, and then skip a week case, and get back on the church. Yeah, skip a week and get back on the church. There you go. Um, yeah, because this is vitally important. I mean, 
we see it just in our culture today. Um, these ideas that now let's not get into it now. <laughs> we'll start the show early. All right. <clears throat> well, that's been G220 Radio for tonight. We do hope that you enjoyed the program. Like, share, comment. Let us know what you think. G220 Radio at gmail.com. Uh, we do appreciate uh, everyone who does tune in and shares and likes the program. Uh, and give us your feedback. We do appreciate that. God bless until next week. <laughs>